Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. The antenna of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos and podcasts is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content of these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. Welcome to the podcast. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Thank you for joining us today for our firm's April virtual First Friday free call-in. First, I just want to start off by wishing everybody a happy Easter and a happy Passover. And I hope you all enjoy your holiday and stay safe over this long holiday weekend. Uh, My name is Beth Mulcahy, and I am the founder and senior partner of the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. I've represented HOAs and condominiums in the state of Arizona now for over 26 years. My firm currently represents over 1,000 planned communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. I also currently serve on my HOA board and I have for many years. Welcome to our firm's virtual First Friday free call-in. First Fridays are a great time to get your questions on Arizona HOA and condo law answered at no charge. Here's how First Fridays is going to work today. First, we have a lot of questions, approximately 50 questions. So if you haven't done so already, please submit your First Friday questions in the Q&A box on Zoom or in the comment section on Facebook Live as soon as possible. And then I will answer all questions between now and 10 a.m. Sometimes we go a little bit over, but we try to stay within that one hour limit. Just a quick friendly reminder, due to the large volume of questions that we receive each time we do First Fridays, this free opportunity is limited to one question per association. If you plan on submitting a question live during this session, please be sure to indicate the name of your association and your current role when you submit your question. Thank you for understanding. Okay, we're gonna dive right into the questions here this morning. And the first question is, let's see. If an Arizona HOA board proposes to change the dues for vacant lots, which is half of the dues, to be the same as homes with a house on them, which pay full dues, and mails the voting ballot, are the non-return ballots counted as a no vote? Or is it only the return ballots that are counted for a yes or no on the item? If there is an Arizona law I can reference, please let me know. First and foremost, I'd need to know what the specific language of your document says. So I don't know if you're trying to do an amendment to your CCNRs, which I kind of guess would be what you'd have to do here to change how much the um, dues are that are being paid by the vacant lots. I guess you probably would have to have an amendment to the CCNRs, so it's really hard for me to to comment on this without knowing more information. But what I can tell you is that typically, if it just depends on the language of the amendment. So if the amendment says that you need 51% of all owners or 67% of all owners to enact this change or to amend the documents, you know, you would a no vote you count all the yes votes, right? Because you need the yes votes to get over the threshold. If somebody doesn't return a vote, it's not considered a yes vote, obviously. So I guess by deduction, it's considered a no vote. I think that answers your question. You said, or is it only return ballots that are counted for the yes or no on the item? So I think it, again, depends on what the language say. So is it only the percentage of those who return the ballots Or is it the percentage of the total votes? Um, And this is something where you definitely need to get your legal counsel involved to help you on this. If I had to guess, 
doing a change like this, you would need a vote of the entire membership. So it's not of those just present at a meeting for this purpose. But again, I don't have the documents, so I can't answer that question specifically. Okay, next question. If a homeowner has paid their dues for the entire year, do we have to send them a quarterly invoice with a zero balance for the last three quarters? This is a senior community and they get confused. They see an invoice and send money they don't owe until next year. So great question. Um, this kind of goes to the heart of a, a law that was passed several years ago that requires um, invoices be sent to the owners, whether they owe money or not. And so unfortunately, this is something that you are going to be required to do, even though they have a zero balance. What you could do is put um, a, a notice on the statement that you do not owe any money. Please do not send any money at this time, something like that. If you want to reference the statute that this, you know, the law that I just referenced, if you're a planned community, it's 33-1807L. If you're a condominium, it's 33-1256L. Bottom line is you still do have to send quarterly notice if your assessments are collected quarterly or monthly notice if your assessments are monthly. To all owners, whether they owe assessments or not, it's just unfortunately the law right now. There was a bill introduced several years ago to correct this, but it didn't get passed by the legislature. Okay, next question, number three. The HOA hired a roofing contractor who then hired a subcontractor. The subcontractor reportedly caused damage to an AC unit when moving it to do repair work on the roof. Who is responsible for the cost of the damage, the replacement of the AC? So if the association has a relationship with the um, roofing contractor, meaning like a contractual relationship, I would start there. And it likely, um, it depends on who you know is responsible for the AC unit, but either the board or the owner would have potentially a claim against the roofing contractor. Um, and then if the roofing contractor wants to go after who he hired as a subcontractor, that person certainly can. Okay, the next question. Number four, I was not aware that a violation letter must be preceded by a warning letter. If it is something that is clearly a violation, is a warning letter still required? For example, a member and his guests partying in the community pool after hours, causing other residents to wake up because of the noise. And so I guess the question that kind of comes from this is, you know, do we have to send out like a friendly courtesy reminder warning letter? before we send a violation letter. Not necessarily unless your documents provide that you have to do that. We do have a great cheat sheet on enforcement of association documents that might be helpful for you um, as you are navigating violations. If your documents don't require you know, a warning letter, you don't necessarily have to do that. If you're setting up a fine, however, you're gonna have to set that up in a manner that you have to give notice of the violation, an opportunity to be heard, and then levy the fine. And so I hope that's helpful for you as you navigate that violation issue. Okay, the next question. We have some members who would like to have us post the draft minutes of our meetings. Our practice has been to post minutes only after they've been approved. Minutes are approved at the following regular board meeting, meaning a delay of one month. One month. In the case of the April meeting, our last before the summer hiatus, there is a delay until October. Do you recommend waiting for the approval before posting? Is there any reason not to post the draft minutes? So a couple of thoughts on this. First, we have a great cheat sheet on board meetings, running board meetings, how to have an effective board meeting in one hour or less. And on the flip side of that cheat sheet, we have um, a summary of how to take perfectly proper legal meeting minutes. So I would encourage you to take a look at that. 
But to answer your question, you know, there's no bright line rule on this. So most associations, in my experience, do not send out the draft minutes or post the draft minutes in their neighborhood. And the reason why is because there might be a change to them and that might cause confusion. If you do decide to post the draft minutes or to hand out the draft minutes before they're approved by the board, what you should do is clearly mark somewhere on the minutes that these are the draft minutes and that there may be changes made at the next board meeting to um, correct any possible mistakes that are in the minutes. So do I recommend approval of the minutes before posting? I likely I do just because I think it's confusing to put out the draft minutes and that they change. You have to explain it. But it's really ultimately up to you if you want to do that or not. Your board. Okay, question six. Are the minutes of an annual meeting to be approved by the board at the next regular board meeting or by the membership at the following year's annual meeting? If approved by the board at the next regular board meeting, is the annual meeting then considered a board meeting and not a meeting of the membership? And does the chair vote? Okay, so this is another meeting minutes question. So this question deals, however, with annual meeting minutes and how we approve annual meeting minutes. So the procedure for an annual meeting is you you wait a whole year to approve the prior year's annual meeting minutes and the owners approve the annual meeting minutes at the annual meeting of the membership. So to answer the first part of your question is, are the minutes of an annual meeting approved by the board? No, they're approved by the owners at the next annual meeting of the membership. So for example, if we have our annual meeting on April in April 2023, um, what will typically happen is after the annual meeting in April 2023, a draft in minutes will be done. Um, it's possible that they're circulated to the board so that the board can um, take a look at them and um, maybe you know look for technical corrections or typos or something like that. But the board doesn't formally approve them. Um, what happens is you wait until April of 2024, the next annual meeting, and then the membership will either approve or not approve the meeting minutes at that time. Okay, there were other parts of this question. So let's see. So they shouldn't be approved by the board. I already covered that. And then you're talking about, should this be considered a board meeting? That would be moot because like I said, annual meeting minutes are approved at the next year's annual meeting um, of the membership. Okay, question number seven. Does an HOA board have the legal right to approve or deny a buyer based upon a background check? So just a short answer on this would be, you know, no, I do not think that that's something that associations should be doing. I know that there are some antiquated documents out there that may talk about having like a special meeting where you get to meet the prospective buyer and might even talk about a right of first refusal if, if the association you know doesn't want to allow them to become an owner in the association. All of those type of provisions are really outdated and not enforceable and a very scary tightrope um, if associations are following those provisions because it could very well be perceived as a Fair Housing Act because really what legitimate purpose would you have to deny somebody from moving into your association? So I'd be really careful on that because I think that if you did deny somebody the right to purchase a lot or a unit in your association, that it could be considered a fair housing, possible fair housing violation that you might be discriminating against somebody. And so be very wary of that. 
Um, we have a great cheat sheet on the Fair Housing Act. It's our federal laws cheat sheet that you may want to take a look at um, when thinking about this subject. So what do you do if you're a board that has these type of provisions in your documents that allows the board to approve or deny potential purchasers? Um, I would not enforce those as a matter of course right now. And then when you go to amend your CCNRs, amend that provision out of your documents. Okay, next question, number eight. Currently, we have a board member who is hard pressed to send violations to their neighbor due to them parking an RV in their driveway. Though it does violate the CCNRs, it has been noticed that this board member is particularly invested in this one violation as opposed to any other violation in the community. Am I able as a fellow board member to let this resident know that a board member is currently invested in ensuring that they receive a violation? I would definitely not do that. So I think what you're, you're asking here is, you know, as a board member, can I let the violator know that, hey, we've got another board member who's really invested to make sure that you receive a violation? No, you should not be doing that. It is common that board members are very active in finding violations in the community. It's just the way it works. I mean, I know I serve on my board and sometimes I'll see something in my community and I'll take a picture of it and just pop it over to the manager and say, hey, can you check into this? This looks like a violation. If where this could become a problem is if we've got, you know, a board member that's complaining about their neighbor's RV, that's clearly a violation of the documents. And then we've got 10 other RVs in the neighborhood that the board's not doing anything about, right? Now that's not gonna be a good idea. So we need to treat everybody the same so we don't have a selective enforcement argument being made. I'm not necessarily opposed to a board member complaining about a violation that's next to them, um, but I am opposed to you as a board member going around the board and saying, hey, we've got a board member that's fixated on your violation. I think that's potentially a breach of your fiduciary duties. It is a violation. If the board member is becoming too over the top and they are you know, becoming excessive in terms of fixated on this violation, then I think as a board, we need to ask that board member just to kind of relax, take a step back and let the board handle the violation like they would handle any other violation. Okay, next question. I was recently elected and I'm serving as the treasurer of our association. I'm concerned because lately our president and vice president have been making decisions without notifying the rest of the board. And there are five total board members. Is he allowed to do this or does he need board approval? And if so, does there need to be a majority vote or unanimous consent? Okay, so great question. You know, number one, individual board members, less than a quorum, you know, should not be making decisions regarding your association outside of a board meeting. That's a violation of the open meeting law. An exception to that would be like if there's an emergency and something needs to be taken, action needs to be taken quickly and there's no way around it. Another exception would be if the board authorizes the president and the vice president and gives them specific dollar authorization or please get the pool pump fixed or whatever, then they would have the authorization of the board behind them to go forward and, and handle a matter. But absent those circumstances, you really do need a majority vote of the board at an open board meeting to make decisions of this nature. You know, I'm really opposed to using unanimous consent by boards outside of a board meeting unless there's an emergency circumstance that requires you to do that because there's two administrative law decisions that state that boards 
cannot do that. Okay, the next question. Many of our newer homeowners purposely ignore our architectural policies and make changes to their homes without submitting for approval. Many of these are realtors who plan to flip the house. The best we can do is collect a fine at the next sale because it isn't cost-effective to litigate these homeowners and they just don't care. Is there anything that we can do to mitigate this? Well, what I would say is as soon as you start to see, well, one thing you could do is, I don't know if these are repeat offenders or if this is just a problem that you see, but it's different players doing this in you know different owners coming in and doing this. And it's not the same person doing it on a repeated basis in your community. What I would recommend is that if you start to see them making changes to their homes without submitting architectural approval, get on them right away. Send out a violation letter, start issuing fines, make the fines reasonable, but large enough that it's going to make them stop their behavior. You can get your attorney involved for the association. That is one suggestion I would have. You could go to the Arizona Department of Real Estate and file a complaint against them and have a hearing with an administrative law judge, or you can threaten litigation. But you're right. It is kind of a sticky wicket because in order to collect on the fines, you have to file a lawsuit and get a judgment against them. And sometimes they flip these houses so quickly that you just run out of time to do that. Maybe what you need to do is handpick certain people that are doing this and go after them early so that the word gets out in the community that this is something that can't be done. I'm also had the attorney pick up the phone. I, we've had really great success with contacting owners that are, you know, violating the CCNRs, whatever it is, whether it's in this case, architectural non-approval violation, just having the attorney call the owner and say, listen, I know you're doing this to you know flip the house and make money, but this is ultimately going to cost you more money in legal fees and fines in a potentially large piece of litigation that could hold up the sale of your property. And so these are all you know important things. The other thing you can threaten is that um, if they're flipping their house and they didn't get approval, we can also notify the buyer that, hey, this never received approval and therefore there's a current violation on the property. So when they enter escrow, we do a disclosure statement, we can notify the buyer. And so the buyer may go back to the seller and say, hey, there's a violation on this. You need to work this out with the association. So hopefully those are some good tips that you can keep in your back pocket as you navigate this problem in your community. Okay, next question, um, number 11. We are an age-restricted community and therefore occupancy states one person must be 55 years of age or older. Our CCNRs also state that no one under the age of 18 is allowed to live here. We've recently had a few renters moving in and they have children from ages three to 16 living in the home. When questioned, they state that they're just visiting, but the children always seem to be around the home. What can we do to enforce the CCNRs and have this kind of activity stopped? Okay, so there's a couple different issues that come into play here. One would be the Fair Housing Act, and the second one would be enforcing governing documents. So I think the way that we handle this situation in most uh, 55 and over communities is we send a letter to the association or the association's attorney, but we'll send a letter to the owner and specify that we think that they're violating the CCNRs and why, and then put it back on them to prove send a letter back, you know, and maybe we can threaten fines, we can threaten a lawsuit. 
I don't know if these are their children or grandchildren. I don't know in the facts here. We do have somebody who has, you know, is age 55 or plus that's occupying the unit. But I think the way to handle it would be to send a very firm demand letter first to open the lines of communication. And then if they don't comply, then push it up to the attorney for the association, consider filing a lawsuit, consider going to the Department of Real Estate, filing a claim, or consider fining them. Okay, question number 12. Which sections of our Articles of Incorporation can be amended by the board of directors without a vote of the owners? So really, this is a case-by-case question. You have to look at what your Articles of Incorporation say in terms of amendment for your association. So typically, the Articles of Incorporation cannot be amended by the board alone. Typically, it is something that is a vote of the membership is required. You know, you need to pull out your articles, look at the amendment section to determine what specifically you have in your documents, your articles, in terms of the procedure to amend the articles. I very rarely, like 0.001% of the time, will we see the board having the right to amend the Articles of Incorporation without a board membership. Okay, question 13. How does the latest Supreme Court ruling regarding short-term rentals, Calway versus Calabria Ranch, impact CCNR changes? The Calway versus Calabria Ranch case is actually not a case about, you know, short-term rentals. It's about the ability to amend CCNRs and that amendments to CCNRs need to be foreseeable and reasonable. And so I would encourage you to read the case, the Calway versus Calabria Ranch case, number one. And then number two, I'd encourage you to look at what state law says about short-term rentals. And so I'm not quite sure where you're going on this, but I will say that the Calway versus Calabria case just makes it important for associations when we're doing amendments to make sure that the amendments are reasonable the language is reasonable, and that it's foreseeable that this particular section could be amended. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens when we finally get a short-term rental case that goes up to the Court of Appeals in Arizona or the Supreme Court of Arizona. Why? Because we have to read together what the statute says in Arizona on short-term rentals in conjunction with what Callaway says, the Callaway case says. The statute says that if an association wants to implement a prohibition or a restriction on rentals, that it has to be done via an amendment to the CCNRs. And the Callaway case says that amendments have to be reasonable and foreseeable. And there was a case after the Callaway case, maybe, gosh, I don't know, four months ago, five months ago, where the Court of Appeals declined to comment on a short-term rental provision that was, you know, being challenged because they knocked it out on a different issue in the case. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens on this. My feeling, and this is just my opinion, is that short-term rental amendments are still something that associations can do. The statute specifically allows us to, tells us if you want to implement a short-term rental restriction, you need to amend the CCNRs. I think there's a way that it can be crafted so that if it's challenged under the Callaway case, that, you know, we have good defenses and that the amendment will be upheld. Obviously, when you're doing a total prohibition of short-term rentals, that's going to be, you know, more difficult because the foreseeability argument may come into play. If you're just putting restrictions on the short-term rental, like it has to be a minimum of 30 days or 60 days. I think that the court's going to be more likely to enforce it. 
and uphold any sort of amendment that you would do for that purpose. Okay, uh, the next question is, can an HOA that does not handle condo sales require a background check of a buyer prior to the sale? And should this be specified in the CCNRs? Okay, interesting that we had two questions on that in the same day. Um, I talked about that a few minutes ago. I do not believe, it's my opinion, that associations should not be doing a background check on a buyer. And I think these type of provisions, if they exist in your documents, are really outdated and should not be enforced. Okay, the next question, number 15. The CCNRs mentions an annual election shall be held for the election of board members. No quorum is met. No election is held, so the board stays in place. The bylaws state that the board members have a four-year term limit on the board. If no election is held, does the four-year term limit still apply? I will mention that no annual meeting is held also due to a lack of quorum along with an election and no attempt is made to reschedule either one. Okay, so this is kind of a difficult situation because the board's trying to have an annual meeting. They can't get a quorum of the members. And how that's typically handled is that the board that's currently sitting as a board at the time of the annual meeting will just extend their term or will extend their time on the board until the next annual meeting. Now, some associations will make an effort, second effort to try to get a quorum. Sometimes that's successful. Sometimes that's not successful. But the bottom line is, is that if you know the board is seated until they're replaced, right? And they're replaced at the annual meeting. If you can't get a quorum at the annual meeting, well, then they can't be replaced. And so even though it will violate the four-year term limit, there's really no way around it. So that person will just extend until the next year's annual meeting. Okay, next question. Our bylaws, number 16, our bylaws and CCNRs are 34 years old. And how much has been voided by changes to Arizona statutes? And much has been voided by changes to the Arizona statute. Is iVote HOA or other online voting mechanisms valid for voting on removal of a board member? If it's valid to elect a board member, it seems it should be valid to remove one as well. I mean, so obviously under Arizona law, there is a state law that governs removing a director from office. Um, and if you're interested in learning about the procedure on that, you just go to our cheat sheet, the top 10 cheat sheet. It's number six. Um, it talks about what the process is to remove a director from office. I do think that you can use online voting for electing directors and if you're voting to remove a director. So I have no issues with that. Um, and state law supports that using email as a method to vote um, is totally fine. Okay, next question. Obviously, though, you still need to give owners that may not be technologically savvy an opportunity to vote in person at the meeting, um, whether it's election of a director or you know, removal of a director, you still have to allow them the opportunity if they, you know, either vote by email or online, or they have an opportunity when they come to the meeting to vote in person. And that that is the law. And so we have to give them options on that. Okay, next question, number 17. We wanted to know about the specific requirements of a trust account contemplated by 33-1817B2 to hold the damage and cleanup and compliance deposits we require for new home construction. Can we deposit them in our operating account and note them as held for construction, or do we need to open a completely different bank account to hold them? That's a really good question. Maybe my team um, can do me a favor and copy that statute, and then we'll move this question to the end, and then I can look at the statute with you 
together and we can just determine how that can best be handled. Okay, so we'll do that question at the very end before we sign off for the day. If you have a party wall shared by 11 homeowners and the HOA, who has the responsibility to maintain the wall when the homeowners have damaged it? We'll have to look at what your documents say. Your CCNRs should be talking about maintenance of party walls. Typically, I, it's hard for me to answer this one because I haven't seen your documents, but typically what happens on this is if there is a party wall and there, you know, it's shared on one side by homeowners and other side, the HOA is maintaining it. So the homeowners maintain it on one side, their side. On the other side, the HOA maintains it because it's facing the common areas. If a homeowner damages it, like some good examples, this, this would be like a tree in their yard causes the wall to um, be raised and start to crack. Um, or maybe they're overwatering their plants. If they cause the damage, typically there's liability shifting. And if we can prove that they cause the damage, then they'll have to pay for the damage that they caused. Okay, next question. What do you do if you are concerned that your board is failing to be in line with the open meeting law exceptions, either by having the closed session before the open board meeting with no notice or announcement of any kind, or by discussing topics that are not one of the five allowed exceptions? And they say something like, well, this could turn into a legal issue theoretically, so we can discuss it during the closed session. So if you're concerned about your board violating the open meeting law, here's the best recommendations I can give you. Um, number one, put your concerns in writing and say, you know, hey, I'm concerned that there are discussions being held during executive session and that aren't actually executive session topics. Why aren't you complying with the law that requires you to notice the executive session meeting and to notify the owners what topics under the Arizona law, you're going to be discussing during the executive session because they are required to notice an executive session and they are required to tell you which sections under Planned Communities Act or the Condominium Act during executive session that they're talking about. And so they're supposed to give you that notice and tell you which sections, you know, under the executive session law that they are talking about. So ask them, you know, why aren't you doing this? So call them out on the mat for it, number one. If they continue to do it, well, it's kind of hard to prove because you don't really know what they're talking about, right? Um, you may want to consider running for the board. You could consider going to the ADRE, making a complaint against them. You could consider filing a lawsuit on this. Um, but I would start first with sending in the letter, or the email that I mentioned about um, calling them out on not complying with what they're supposed to be calling complying with on the notice and notifying the owners of what topics they're going to be discussing during executive session. Okay, next question. Number 20, must the board obtain unanimous approval of board meeting minutes prior to distribution, or may they move forward with a simple majority of good faith attempts have been made? Sometimes efforts for unanimity have um, significantly delayed distribution of minutes to the community. Our documents are silent on this issue. So kind of interesting because I'm guessing that you're making the approval outside of a board meeting um, because you're talking about like unanimous written consent. As I said before, I'm really opposed to, you know, boards using the unanimous written consent to make decisions outside of a board meeting unless there's an emergency that would dictate them to do that. Approving the meeting minutes doesn't seem like an emergency. What I would recommend that you do here if you want to get the meeting minutes out right away, 
is put them in, out in draft form and then approve them at the next month's meeting minutes, at the next month's meeting um, when you're discussing prior month's meeting minutes. But again, most boards, like I said earlier in this presentation, most boards really do wait to send out the minutes until after the next regularly scheduled board meeting where they approve the minutes at that time. Okay, next question, 21. This is the only reference in our docs to monthly assessments. The Board of Management shall have the following rights and powers. A, to levy monthly assessments payable in advance against each residential unit. B, to use and expend the assessments to maintain. Does this mean the annual budget and monthly assessments do not require ratification by the owners? Okay, so you have, I'm guessing that these are really old documents, number one. And it says that the board has the power to levy assessments against each residential unit and to use and extend, expend the assessments to maintain things. It, it just depends. It's really hard to answer these questions sometimes because I don't know if you are a condominium or a planned community. If you're a planned community, which, you know, there's specific criteria to be a planned community, there is a cap on how, you know, high you can go on the assessment. You have to look at, you know, last year's assessment. You could only go up to 20%, you know, higher than last year's assessment without getting a vote of the membership to approve. And you can let 51% of the membership to approve anything about that. So this is kind of a big question mark for me because I don't know if you're a condo. I don't know if you're a planned community. I don't know how high you want to raise it. So sort of a hard question for me to answer based upon the facts that were presented. Okay, question number 22. What documents and policies should be published on an association's website? Should they include any resolutions passed by the association board? You know, as a, a starting point, all of your association documents and all forms that owners may need, like architectural forms, should be on the association's website. Hopefully, you've got a password-protected area where owners can get into um, the website and see their financial accounting of how much they owe the association or don't owe the association or payments made. Should the board include resolutions on the website? You know, resolutions are really kind of a thing of the past. It's not very common that we have boards, you know, using resolutions now to make policy because the meeting minutes really should be the official record of the association. So if you have old resolutions, of course, you certainly could put those on there. There's nothing that would prohibit you from doing that. But for a board, I think really you should shy away from using resolutions and just have the board making decisions in meeting minutes going forward. Okay, the next question, 23. Condominium Act, ARS 33-1260, limits items that must be disclosed by unit owners in communities that have less than 50 units upon written notice of a pending sale. Does the association bear any liability if an item is omitted? Note, our management company uses a service to host closing documents online, which may give the impression that it is the management company's responsibility to provide all required items, even for a community of less than 50 units. Okay, so you're talking about the disclosure statement that is sent to buyers when there is a sale of a unit in a condominium or in a planning community, if you're in a planning community. I guess the question is, is that um, you're picking up on the fact that if you have less than 50 units, the onerous to fill out the disclosure statement typically falls on the seller owner who's selling their property. But in this case, 
your management company is stepping in and, and doing it anyways, even though you know they're not required to. But is there liability if they leave something out? So if you voluntarily volunteer to fill out the disclosure statement in a community that you know has less than 50 units, you are putting yourself in the line of fire and they should be, you know, putting the, in the documents everything that is required under the disclosure, you know, statement statute. Is there liability? Yes. I do think there's liability, even though the onerous really was on the association to fill out the disclosure statement. If the management company steps in to do it and they don't do it right, then they're, of course, there's going to be liability on the association. Okay. Question number 24. When an HOA board votes by email, which statute does reference the requirement and definition of unanimous vote is required? And two, does unanimous mean 100% agreement by those board members who choose to apply or 100% agreement from every elected board member? An example, one board member does not reply with a vote by email. Okay, first things first, I do not like it when boards vote by unanimous written consent. I've said that a couple of times now in the presentation today, probably something that we need to talk about at future classes so that we really hammer this point home. Why do I not like it? Because I think it violates open meeting law. The only exception where you would be able to use email voting to vote on an issue would be in the event that there's an emergency in your association and you cannot wait 48 hours to vote on something. And so I guess to answer your questions, what Arizona statute talks about unanimous written consent, it's in the Nonprofit Corporation Act. But does unanimous mean 100% agreement of all the board members? Yes, it would. So if you have the one board member who never replies, that makes it not unanimous. But again, I just want to reiterate that there are two cases that have been determined by administrative law judges in Arizona that say that using unanimous written consent to make decisions by an HOA or a condo is a violation of open meeting law. So I'd be very careful about doing that going forward. Okay, question number 25. And I'm just going to do a little check here to see how many total questions we have. Okay, so it looks like we have about 54, 55 total questions. So we're at about the halfway point. Okay, our bylaws state that the board shall not approve any capital expenditures as opposed to maintenance expense in excess of $10,000 without the prior approval of the members holding two thirds of the votes and a duly convened meeting of the members. Does the $15,000 cost of converting grass areas to xeriscape require member approval? So if your bylaws say that, you know, the board cannot approve a capital expenditure of $10,000 without the membership's approval, um, I guess, the question falls on, is the xeriscape, the grass, the conversion of grass to xeriscape, is that considered a capital expenditure? It probably is, even though I'm guessing that that's not in your reserve study as being a reserve item, but I would be safe and I would go to the membership for approval on that for many reasons. Um, not only because of that section in your bylaws that states that, but also converting grass to turf is kind of controversial and you want to make sure that the owners understand why you want to do this and that it's going to look nice, et cetera, because it could be kind of a controversial subject too. Okay, next question, number 26. Our CCNRs read in part, the declarant for each lot owned within the properties, hereby covenants, 
and each owner of any lot by acceptance of a deed, therefore, whether or not it shall be so expressed in any such deed or other conveyance is deemed to covenant and agree to pay to the association. Annual assessments, special assessments, such assessments shall be fixed, blah, 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 blah. Do you believe that we have the authority to assess a capital investment assessment or not? Okay, so I think this kind of relies on whether or not so you could do a special assessment for capital improvements. So if you are, let's say that the clubhouse needs to have a new roof or something like that, and that's a reserve item. So you could do a special assessment, you know, as long as you followed whatever the documents say about that, because that's considered a capital improvement. If you are talking about a capital investment assessment being like a capital improvement fund and you're you know, going to require the buyers who buy into your community to pay into the capital improvement fund, that section doesn't allow you to do that. You would have to amend your documents and put a separate section in that says that all buyers have to pay like a capital improvement fee when they become an owner. Okay, next question, number 27. Where do I go as an owner if I have evidence that board members and management companies are covering up criminal activity within association finances? I've already gone to the local authorities and they couldn't help me. Hmm. Well, the police, I mean, you have to have evidence. If you're going to the police to show that somebody is, you know, embezzling money, you have to have really good concrete evidence. So I don't know what you mean by you went to the local authorities, but the police would be one um, avenue. Another avenue would be to go to the Department of Real Estate and file a complaint or file a lawsuit and have an independent party then rule that there has been some sort of impropriety by the board. Um, next question, but usually the police, you have to have your documents in order. Usually the police would be the ones that, you know, then they escalate it, they review it. If they agree that there's cause, then they escalate it up to, you know, the prosecutor for the county. Okay, next question, number 28. What are the requirements of the board to homeowners regarding voting for a special assessment for replacing the roofs? Um, it really just depends on what your documents state. So, you know, look at your CCNRs. So there'll be a section on special assessments. You just need to follow specifically what your documents state to amend the CCNRs. Typically, it required to levy a special assessment. Excuse me. Typically, what the documents will state is that there has to be a meeting of the membership and that you need a certain percentage of owners um, to participate, like the quorum. And then you need a percentage of the owners to vote to pass the special assessment. Sometimes it is only um, a percentage of the owners actually voting. Sometimes it's a percentage of all voters. So you just have to really look at that language carefully to determine what percentages that you need and get your legal counsel involved to help you through that process. Okay, next question, number 29. In previous classes, you have mentioned that board members can meet if there is, you have mentioned that board members can meet. If there is not a quorum, parentheses, no more than two, does that mean that the president should meet individually with all board members? Or is this the workaround suggesting that the president can use this loophole to meet with certain board members only and exclude other board members from being advised or included? Our property management company is aware of this practice in our community. Okay, so it's just as a refresher, it's not against the law for less than a quorum of the board to meet and talk about association business. So less than a quorum, it's not against the open meeting law for less than a quorum of the board to meet to discuss association business. 
it's not good practices or it's not best practices to exclude other board members if there are some discussions being had that are less than a quorum. These things come up, though. There's some board members that see each other at golf or walking club or the pickleball courts, and it's less than a quorum, and they may be talking about things. So that does happen. Does that mean the president should meet individually with all board members? I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying that it's not a violation if the president is meeting with less than a quorum. You know, the second part of this is, um, or is this workaround suggesting that the president can use this loophole to meet with certain board members and exclude other board members? Not saying that either. That may be happening, um, but as long as the president is meeting with less than a quorum, they're not violating the law. Of course, if you want to have a healthy and functional board, you know, the president shouldn't be doing things like that, like excluding people, and they should be trying to build a team and not keep people off the team type of thing. Okay, question 30. If an HOA's CCNR state that the unit own, that the unit must be owner-occupied, will that provision prohibit buyers who want to buy and rent full-time, but still allow buyers who buy as a second home to rent for a few months per year? Okay, so you have CCNRs for your association that say that the unit must be owner-occupied. That's kind of a little bit of a difficult situation because it doesn't necessarily say that there can't be renters, but it doesn't necessarily say that there can because you have to be owner-occupied. I hope that there was a second part of that sentence that says, you know, and no unit may be rented, something like that, but I only have what you have given me here. So the question is, will that that provision prohibit buyers who want to buy and rent or maybe buyers who want to live there and who you know, want to just rent for the few months of the year that they're not living there. I think an argument can be made that if it says it has to be owner-occupied, that you can't have, you know, renters renting in there. But it would certainly be so much better if it actually said renters were not allowed in the community. That would make the language a lot stronger. Okay, question number 31. In a condominium association, open meeting laws require, regarding timing and manner of notice, apply equally to the following. Board meetings, special board meetings, advisory committee meetings, and town hall meetings to get input. Would the open meeting law apply if a board quorum is not present? So obviously we're saying that in any condominium or any planned community association, open meeting laws require that we get 48 hours notice. And so I guess you're saying, would the open meeting apply if a board quorum is not present? Well, the way that the statute is written is that any regularly scheduled committee meetings also require under the law that 48 hours notice, and it requires that they be an open meeting so the members can attend, listen, and participate. So even if a committee meeting, a regularly scheduled committee committee meeting doesn't have a quorum of the board, you'd still need to follow the open meeting law. Generally speaking, the open meeting law needs to be followed if you're having a board meeting, number one, or if you're having a regularly scheduled committee meeting. Regularly scheduled means it's always the same time each month, or you have one every month. I think an argument could be made for that too. Okay, question 32. We are self-managed HOA. We hire an electrical contractor to install lights for a new carport. After the electrical job was finished, the contractor submitted a change order that was 54% higher than the original contract amount. We asked the contractor to break down the request by line item. However, he's not complying with that. 
what is the liability to the association if we do not pay for the change order? A couple of things. You may want to go to the register of contractors on this because they register, you know, contractors have to be registered with the register of contractors. There's a whole complaint process that you can go through there. It's not very expensive to do. But I think that the main thing is, what do we do if we don't pay it? What kind of liability do we have? So potentially the contractor could sue the association and get judgment against the association for um, not paying the charge for the change order. Of course, there's going to be like a really careful examination of the contract and the right to have a change order. Because if somebody on the board who had authority approved the change order, that might be considered something that you're required to pay under the contract. And so you know, there is potentially some liability. What I would do is if I were looking at this is I would consider, hey, should we be going to the register of contractors to complain about this contractor? Number two, what does the contract say? Number three, you know, what would the change order say? Did we approve it? All these things need to be looked at to determine how serious the liability is for the association. Okay, question number 33. Is it necessary to motion to approve HOA committee's reporting at a general board meeting to the members? Probably not. Um, so if an HOA committee comes to the meeting and they are proposing, you know, or they're giving a report, I don't think that you need to approve um, their reporting as part of the formal process at a board meeting. Okay, question 34. Our board of directors and the management company will not notify members of board meetings. Votes are held without a meeting. There are no minutes or records or discussion prior to a vote. How can we make them notify us? of these board meetings and to stop using email instead of having board meetings. Okay, well, here's what I would recommend. You should document your concerns in writing to the board and tell them that you think they're violating the open meeting law, remind them of the requirements of the open meeting law. How can you make them notify us? You can't really, but what you can do is notify them of their obligations under the law And if they don't follow it, you can go to the ADRE, the Department of Real Estate, file a complaint, or you can file a lawsuit against them, or you can hire a lawyer to write them a letter regarding the violation. Okay, next question, number 35. Is it legal to put on the bottom of an agenda that the board reserves the right to add or delete final meeting agendas as necessary without notice? Proper 48-hour agenda notice goes out, but changes at the meeting. One change was a $35,000 purchase, which was made at the meeting. Okay, so a couple of things. The notice of the meeting should be sent out to the membership at least 48 hours in advance of a regular board meeting. We suggest as a firm, best practices is that you also send out a meeting agenda. I am fine with the board saying that they can add or delete final items as necessary without notice. But if something that you're adding to the agenda is something like an amendment to the association's documents. My opinion that state law would require you to give the 48 hours notice of something like that. And that would be where the board's voting to amend the documents. Just recognize that if you add it to the agenda, there's gonna be higher scrutiny if it's added to the agenda at the last minute. We just wanna make sure that we've met all of our notice requirements. And there is a portion of the statute that says that, you know, anytime the board takes action to amend the documents, that it should be provided in notice that you're going to be doing that. So close analysis of what you're adding to the agenda should be done and and make sure that if it's challenged that you have a good argument why it was added late. It might be that the final bid came in or something like that. And that's probably fine. 
Um, but if it, like I said, if it's a CCNR amendment or a bylaw amendment or a rules amendment, all those should be noticed 48 hours in advance with the meeting notice. Question number 36. Um, we have a neighbor dispute regarding noise. Our rules and regulations state quiet hours are 10 p.m. to 8 a.m. One neighbor is remodeling and using her driveway for sawing in compliance with quiet hours. The next door neighbor is citing emotional distress from this noise. Do we have an obligation to measure noise levels or other means to resolve this problem? Well, I guess one question I would have in this case is, are there other owners that are complaining about this too? You know, because I know this association, I know the configuration of your association. Or is this maybe like an eggshell plaintiff who, you know, is just upset, you know, and this is the only person that's complaining about it. Do you have an obligation to measure noise levels? Not necessarily, but if the owner who's complaining brings a noise report, a decibel level report to you, I do think you should look at it. If you have multiple owners complaining about it, you know, you should talk to the owner that's doing the construction and see if there's a way that we could, you know, make the situation better. We have, this is, does sound like a neighbor to neighbor feud, but on that same note, it sounds like it could be a nuisance issue too, you know, where one neighbor is potentially creating a nuisance that's affecting other neighbors. So, but other owners aren't complaining about it. So hmm, that's kind of a tough one. I probably would notify the owner, if I were advising you on this, I would notify the owner that has the contractor that's doing the sawing that, hey, we've have received a complaint on this and you shouldn't be using your driveway for sawing excessively or is there just anything that you can do to mitigate the noise we'd appreciate it if they're doing it during the quiet hours obviously that's a violation but it doesn't appear that they're doing that and see what the response is the good thing about sawing is it's only a limited period of time that they do this because construction goes in phases so it might be like a week of really nasty sawing noises and then it's over then they move on to the next phase which might be painting or whatever so Hopefully I've given you some good suggestions on this. I don't think, do not believe you have an obligation to measure noise levels based upon what I'm hearing, because I'm not hearing that there's more than one owner that's complained about this. But if you do start to get more complaints, then that might be something you want to do. But again, this is such a short period of time, you know, that the sewing is going to be happening, that it's, it's not like a barking dog or it's, you know, not like a regular noise that occurs every day. This is going to be a limited time when this is being done. Okay, next question, number 37. During the last legislative session, we were changes made affecting the audit review compilation requirements for planned communities. Has any other organization put new requirements in place affecting these reports? No and no. We have all of our past legislative updates on our website, mulcahylawfirm.com. Just go to our cheat sheet page. You can look at all the changes that have been made over the years. There haven't been any recent changes to the audit review compilation requirements for planning communities. Okay, um, and if you're interested in those, you can go to our top 10 cheat sheet. I think it's number five on the top 10 cheat sheet. Number 38, we need to discuss some legal advice we've just been given about an issue we're having and we don't feel it can wait until the next regular meeting. Can we schedule a special board meeting, give 48 hours notice as required, and hold the meeting just as an executive meeting to discuss this one issue, the legal advice. Yes, you certainly can. You can give the 48 hours notice as we talked about, as you mentioned, and notice the meeting as an executive session and then state that you're going to be discussing legal advice from an attorney on a matter and, and cite the specific state statute that complies with that. Um, and that's fine. You can do that. 
the reason why you can do that is because it's one of the exceptions for the executive session meeting. Okay, question number 39. What can we do if a board member refuses to follow the CCNRs and laws? He schedules puppy hours nightly in the community in which 10 to 15 dogs take over the common area and run off leash. The community asks them multiple times to stop, but the wife of the board member attacks any member that questions this puppy hour. Our management company is no help. Okay, I mean, I guess I would want to look at what your documents say. Is this something that's prohibited by your documents? Is this like an enclosed area? Is this considered a dog run? I'm guessing the answer is no, no, no. So your documents probably don't address this. If I had to guess, it's not an enclosed area. So I guess as a board, you just need to add this as an agenda item to a meeting and talk about it. Talk about why this potentially is good, why this is potentially bad, and then make a decision as a board and then maybe pass a rule on it and then enforce the rule going forward. Okay, next question, number 40. The board president started a maintenance company and the board hired his company. Oh no, this doesn't sound good. (laughs) He did not step down from the board. Getting worse. Okay, is this situation a conflict of interest? Is this a breach of fiduciary duty by the rest of the board? Okay, so I don't know how this all went down, but you know, at first glance, this is does not look good. I would not be in favor of this happening. So let's just kind of do a quick little 411 on the conflict of interest statute under Planned Communities Act and the Condominium Act. So it's really liberal. It does say that if a board member has a conflict of interest, that they just have to disclose it in an open board meeting. And once they disclose it, then they can vote on the issue that's pertaining to the conflict of interest. I take a little bit more of a hardline approach as an attorney that works in this area. I would be opposed if I was consulted on this, for the board to hire the president's maintenance company, I would advise against that. If you wanted to do this, I would say you should step down from the board, resign, um, and then the board can independently decide if they want to hire this company. I do think it's a conflict of interest, even though he may have complied with the conflict of interest statute if he, in fact, disclosed that he owns this company before there was a vote to hire it. I still think it's a problem from a legal perspective. Do I think it's a breach of the fiduciary duty by the rest of the board? I don't know enough facts about whether or not this board member disclosed it was his company um, prior to taking the vote. It it may not be, but it's just a sign that the board isn't really thinking through things, in my opinion, and that they are not making good decisions. Okay, question number 41. How much, if any, information regarding CCNR violations should be entered into board minutes? Um, I would say enough so that there's a paper trail as to what happened and how the board's handling it. So you could do it by lot numbers. You can use names if you want to. Sometimes there's a privacy issue. So boards just go by the lot numbers typically is what I see. Okay, next question, number 42. Is there a resource like a statute, court case, treaties that authoritatively sets the standard for distinguishing between a capital improvement and maintenance? Assuming the following, an HOA board intends to spend an hour, intends to spend an amount of money equal to three times its annual revenue to build a new common area structure that reduces expenses, maintenance expenses, adds functionality and enhances value, and has a useful life of 20 to 30 years. Is this a capital improvement or maintenance and why? Okay, so this is kind of a hard subject because there is no statute that talks about what is a capital improvement. 
there is no definition in the Condominium Act or the Planned Communities Act. So we kind of have to go by what does the dictionary say about it? This is a big expense. So three times annual revenue, common area structure. I mean, it does appear that, you know, with the useful life of it, that it would be considered a capital um, improvement and not just like a maintenance type thing. You probably want to talk with your reserve company and have them add it to your reserve so that it's formally capital improvement. Okay, next question. Number 43, I asked the treasurer for copies of invoices from the law firm the HOA retains. I was told no, that the invoice is privileged. Do you believe an invoice is privileged and contains legal advice? Is the treasurer correct or should I be entitled to the invoices with perhaps some redaction in the description of the billing? So I am a big proponent of doing the redaction. Um, if there is any confidential privilege information in the bills and then give the records to whoever wants them. I think that just saying that the entire invoice is privileged is probably, I don't know, it is a communication between the attorney and the association's board. So it does meet that, but I don't necessarily think that there's advice on it. And I always just kind of, my feeling is I'm not trying to hide the ball. If there is anything on the invoice that would be confidential, privileged, or opinion, I would just redact that and then give it to you. Um, but technically, they may be able to withhold that from you just because it is a communication between the board and the association. Okay, next question. Um, our community is classified as a 528 nonprofit. At one seminar, we heard that 501c3 and 501c4 are normal. HOAs, would we at this classification? follow the regulations for open meeting laws for HOAs. I have to see your documents to determine that because, you know, whether or not you have to follow the open meeting laws for HOAs is dependent on whether or not you're a condominium or a planned community. And then there's specific criteria to be considered a condominium or a planned community. So what I would recommend is that you give your CCNRs and your, just your CCNR should be enough, possibly your bylaws to your association's attorney have them look at it and give an opinion as to whether or not you're subject to the Condo Act or the Planning Communities Act. Question number 45, looks like we're getting down to the last 10. In a 55 plus community, does one owner or renter have to be 55 years of age, living or residing in the property, or can a person age 45 reside in the property without a 55 year old being present temporarily? Like say maybe they stay 30 to 60 days. Who is the enforcement arm? Okay, so these are hard questions. Um, so technically speaking, if, if it's a 55 and over community, one owner typically will have to be age 55 or over living in the property. There are some very limited exceptions. And we actually recently kind of looked into this issue a little bit more where somebody who's younger may be able to stay there temporarily without the 55 plus person being there. So I would say as a rule of thumb, you do have to have one occupant that's age 55 or over. That is the law, right? The board can make exceptions, you know, under the Fair Housing Act, you know, there is a 20% budge rule, so to speak, where you can have the board can make an exception and allow somebody who's less than 55 live on the property as long as you have 80% of the units that are 55 or over occupied with one occupant being 55 or over. You know, I think we probably just need to find out what the facts and circumstances are regarding the 45-year-old living 30 to 60 days and reach out to your attorney to discuss it. Okay, question number 46. It has been brought to our attention that our management company is not using our current rules. 
Our rules were updated eight months ago when sending out violation letters. They are doing a cut and paste of the old wording of the letter. And this has put us now in a legal situation. We had no idea because we did not receive a copy of what was being sent to the owners. Is there some way to hold them accountable for their negligence or suggestions to make sure they accurately and consistently do their job? Well, number one, start getting copies of those letters. You see what's going out. Number two, just reiterate how important it is to your association that they are using the correct legal documents going forward. Um, Number three, make sure they correct any mistakes that they made in the past by contacting the owners and making it right at no charge. Let's see, question number 47. Are you aware of any state that has an HOA commission oversight over HOA management companies and HOA board members similar to the real estate commission has oversight over licensed realtors? Um, I am aware that there's an ombudsman that handles disputes in Nevada. Um, And I think there's a couple other states that may have like an oversight arm, but of course we don't have that in Arizona. Question 48, do the homeowners vote on what the capital assessment will be prior to the updating the CCNRs? Or do they vote on having a capital assessment and the board decides the amount? We plan on using your firm as soon as we complete our draft. Okay, so I guess the question is, do homeowners vote on what the assessment will be prior to the updating of the CCNRs. I'm actually not sure what you're trying to say here. Okay, so I guess you could vote if you wanna have a section on the capital assessment, you know, you could vote on that separately without having to update the entire CCNRs, you know, and vote on, on that at that time. Or you said, or do they have, or do they vote on having a capital assessment and the board decides the amount? I think what you're saying is, I mean, usually if there's going to be an assessment, um, and it sounds like this is like a capital improvement assessment, so it'd be like a special assessment, typically the board will go to the membership and say, this is how much money we need per lot or per unit and let the owners vote on it. So that would be what I would recommend. Although I haven't seen your documents, so I'm going to put that caveat in there. Your documents may have specific language on how this is done. Question number 49, what is the best percentage to increase HOA dues each year? That's a tough question because inflation's going up by a lot. I think kind of as a rule of thumb, a lot of associations are doing somewhere between the five to 10% range right now with the current economy. Um, I'm not saying that's the best percentage. I think what you have to look at is what are your expenses and how much do you need to raise them to meet your expenses as they rise each year? That's the best formula that I would give. Okay, question 50, we're in the down last stretch here. Our townhome association CCNRs prohibit gainful occupation, business, trade, or other non-residential use on any lot. Does this prohibit an annual community garage sale? Our governing documents do not address this specifically. I'm not opposed to having an, a community garage sale on your common areas. Um, and I, I'm guessing that it's not gonna occur on the lot that it would be, you know, like in the common areas. But if in fact, you know, your documents do, they say this and you're going to have the community-wide garage sale, it does appear if you're going to be putting your stuff out on your lot to sell it, that it violates the section. So I would be careful on that. If it's going to be something where it's on the common areas, everybody moves their stuff to the common areas, I think that would be okay. But I do think you'd be violating the current way that your documents are written if you let the garage sale move forward. Um, you could always amend that section or clarify it as well going forward to an amendment to your documents. 
Okay, question number 51. My husband has had to use a wheelchair or walker to get around. We have a service dog for him. Our association requests that if you have a dog, you must use the doggy park to relieve them. The issue is that dog parks are blocks and my husband is unable to get his walker and wheelchair up above the blocks. We submitted a request for a ramp and offered to purchase and install the ramps. We asked them for the place and they continue to ask for information. Okay, a couple of things that you may want to think about. Um, we have a cheat sheet on the Fair Housing Act, um, which is very helpful. Um, it will outline, you know, what the different duties and responsibilities are for the association. It appears to me, based upon the facts that you've given, that the association needs to make a reasonable accommodation for you and install the ramps. Um, now, you would be paying for those um, or to prove the installation of the ramps. You would have to pay for the reasonable accommodation and you'd have to maintain it. They may even require you to undo it um, at some point if you're moving from the association. But I do think that a reasonable modification to the property should be done to allow your husband the right to take your dog to the dog park. Okay, on the next question, number 52, our articles of incorporation are dated in 1975 and have an active status with the Arizona Corporation Commission. We file our annual report every year. Article 12 of our article states, its termination shall be 25 years thereafter with the privilege of renewal as provided by law. I couldn't find any mention of reviewing the of renewing the articles in Title 10. Is the annual report that we file each year the same as renewing the articles? So many years ago, the renewal provision was kind of deleted from Arizona law, and it says that corporations' existence are um, extend beyond whatever the provision is that may have a limitation, like 25 years, and then gets renewed by law. Um, those sections are outdated now under Arizona law, and so you don't have to renew it. It's the bottom line. And by you do have to file your annual report every year. It's not considered a renewal because that law kind of knocked that out. You don't have to do the renewal anymore. But you do have to file an annual report every year in order to stay in good standing with the Corporation Commission. Okay, question 53. Can an HOA establish a no rental policy in the CCNRs? So I'm going to direct you to my cheat sheet on amending CCNRs and implementing rental restrictions. Really hard question to answer without knowing, are you a condominium? Are you a planned community? So I think you need to reach back to our firm to give us more information so we can help answer that question. Okay, next question. If a board member wants to discuss an architectural request at the executive session, since no fine was issued or is this a regular such session issue? So whenever you have like an architectural request, typically that's done in the open session, unless there's going to be like some sort of advice from your attorney on this, or unless it's potentially, you know, like a violation of the documents. And so it appears there's no fine been issued and this is just a regular session issue. So my feeling would be that this should be in the executive session. Now, if it, somebody does on the board does want to move this to an executive session, um, then what I would suggest is that you look at the executive session topics and see if this falls under any of them. I'm guessing it probably doesn't unless maybe you're going to have your attorney present to help you weigh in on the application. Okay, um, we're going to go back to that question that I had to skip a little bit earlier because I wanted to have the statute right in front of me. Just as a refresher, it's question 55. 
We wanted to know about the specific requirements of a trust account contemplated by 331817B2A to hold the damage cleanup and compliance deposits we require for new home construction. Can we deposit them in our operating account and note them as held for construction? Or do we need to open a completely different bank account to hold them? Okay, so again, we just go to 331817. It does state under B. 2A, that the deposit must be placed in a trust account with the following instructions, um, that the cost of the trust account must be shared equally between the association and the member. If the construction project is abandoned, the board of directors may determine the appropriate use of the deposit monies and any interest earned on the refundable security deposit shall become part of the security deposit. So it does appear that you do have to put it in a trust account that's separate. Um, so I would be opposed to you putting them in your operating account and then marking or noting them that they're being held um, for construction. I do think that you need to open a, a completely separate bank account to hold them because a trust account is different than a general banking account, like a checking account for the association. And obviously there's the costs on this are going to be born between the association and the member, et cetera. So there's some very specific requirements as outlined under the law. Now, that being said, I know that some management companies aren't doing it this way. I'm only here to tell you that it says it has to be placed in a trust account and the trust account is not the same as a general checking account. Okay. So that's it. We got through a lot of questions today. Um, it's about 10, 23 in the morning. And we got through 55 questions, which is awesome. Just some concluding remarks as we close out today. Thank you again for joining us for our first Friday virtual event. We had over 64 attendees on Zoom and nine live viewers on Facebook. So thanks so much for being here. I know it's probably a busy holiday weekend as you're gearing up to go into Easter and Passover this weekend. Please don't forget to join us for our firm's 2023 virtual HOA Condo Academy class. Um, it's our fourth class of the year on Tuesday, April 18th, 2023 from 11 to 12. The topic for that session is how to best handle difficult owners and difficult boards. And there's one thing that's very common in this practice area is that difficult owners really do cause a lot of problems for boards and management companies. And so we're going to give you some tips that we've learned from being in the trenches for a quarter of a century on what are some things that we can do to effectively manage problems with difficult owners and problems that may exist on your existing board um, with maybe difficult board members or problems on your board. So I hope you'll join us for that class. That's always a fun class to teach because we have great stories about all kinds of crazy things that have happened over 25 years and how you can best manage those difficult situations so that you don't have a bunch of hassles when you serve on the board or a bunch of stress or not being able to sleep at night because there's so many problems with these difficult owners. We're going to give you tips on how to best manage that so that your time on the board will be um, less stressful and easier to navigate. Okay, our next live virtual first Friday is going to be Friday, May 5th. That's going to be um, an interesting day because it'll be the morning after my birthday. Um, I May 4th is my birthday, and I think the 5th is going to be the Cinco de Mayo. So we're going to have to have some fun with that class. So I look forward to seeing you all at our upcoming classes in April. And if not, I'll see you again on our next virtual first Friday event on May 5th. 
So take care, everybody. We hope to see you uh, throughout this month. Have a great Easter and Passover with your families and appreciate you being here today and caring about your communities. Thank you. Goodbye. Don't forget our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. 